Well, brethren, good to see you again and see the church gathered on this blessed Lord's Day. Well, please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. We've been going through this grand chapter, one of the most famous chapters in all the Word of God, this chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13. Let me just pick up verse 7. As I said, we've been expounding verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and we come to verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have fully been known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, let's again look to our Lord and Seek his face and call upon him for help. Father in heaven, we again are thankful that we come to a God that has made himself known to us by way of your Son, Jesus, by way of your Spirit, and by way of this book called the Bible, the Scriptures. And we are thankful that we can open up the Bible and we can read our Bibles, that we can Be very much confident, Lord, that this word is a true word, that every word found in this book is inspired, God-breathed. And we pray, O God, that you would be pleased today to help us to better understand what your word says to us and how we can better live for you and glorify you in all that we say and do. We want to be more like your Son. We want to be more holy in all manner of life. And so come, we plead, by your Holy Spirit, visit us, help us, teach us, lead us, guide us. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. What will people do for a few seconds of fame? You've probably seen it yourself at some huge sporting event during the seventh inning. Suddenly a person jumps on to the field waving their hands and running across the field and they're captured on that jumbotron. Why? Well, it's self-glory. It's glory for, it's hunger glory. And that certainly explains what we could say is the celebrity obsession of our day. Why do most Americans become fascinated and almost, most often envious of the rich and the famous, the Tom Brady's, the Bill Gates, the LeBron James, the Oprah Winfrey's, they... They seem to have everything, but they really don't. And what most people don't realize is that at the end of the day, no matter how many people you influence, no matter how many Twitter followings you have, and how many books you sell, and how many football trophies you win, you can still be the biggest loser. It can all go into a rat hole of a waste. Jim Elliott, the missionary who 
died at the hands of the deadly spears of the Aqua Indians in Ecuador, chose to live a different way, he expressed it with these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's sort of what the Apostle Paul is teaching us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you go back to those first few verses, he says you can possess extraordinary gifts, you can have wonderful abilities, you can make the greatest of all sacrifices, but if you don't have love, if you don't have love, you end up with a big fat zero. It's like investing all your money in what you thought was pure gold, 100% gold, but in reality, it's fool's gold. It amounts to nothing. And sad to say, that's how most people live. They may have been very famous on a basketball court in front of the TV screen. They have meet, reached the pinnacle of success financially, politically, in the sports realm. But if they are not living for Jesus Christ, then they are living a life not worth living. And the life of Jesus Christ is described right here in 1 Corinthians 13. That's how he lived. Jesus was motivated, controlled, empowered, and influenced by love. Love for his Father, love for sinners, and love for the church. But it's easy to see, isn't it, why most people don't choose to live a life like this. It demands sacrifice. We want a ministry, but not one that requires personal sacrifice. We want ease, comfort, and convenience. Dr. Philip Riken has a book titled Loving the Way Jesus Loved, and he gives an exposition of this very chapter here in 1 Corinthians 13, and he says, this passage is often read at weddings. Many people associate the passage with marriage, but the dominant image to associate with these words is not the wedding gown, but the cross. The concept of sacrifice is throbbing throughout this chapter. And as we come to the back end of chapter 13, an argument could be made that this is where the, the shadow of the cross looms even greater. We see the highest level of costliness and sacrifice here in verse 7 by way of these four positive statements. They're all tied together, you could say, by one word. In the original Greek, it's the word panta, translated by two English words, all things. Love covers all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things, and love endures all things. And you might recall a couple of weeks ago, we dealt with the first of all things. Love bears or covers all things, and we took that to mean that love bears by covering all things, the weaknesses, the failings, and the sins of our brethren. That same perspective is taught by Peter, 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins, and also by King Solomon, Proverbs 10.11, love covers all transgressions. Yes, love bears, love protects, 
as opposed to exposing, gloating, and even condemning. You could say that love has a protective shield. But now this morning we come to the second all things. Verse 7. Love believes all things. And here's how I want us to look at it. Three lenses, three perspectives. Number one. Love believes all things absolutely, and I want to add to that from an exclusive divine side. Love believes all things absolutely from an exclusive divine side. Love believes all things comparatively, a qualified human side, and then love believes all things practically the beneficial side. So that's how we want to go. Those three major perspectives. Love believes all things absolutely. Love believes all things comparatively. And love believes all things practically. First of all, love believes all things absolutely. We're looking at it now from the exclusive divine side. Now the passage here in 1 Corinthians 13, the one word that dominates is the word agape. It's the word translated Love. It's used at least nine times. And that word in the original Greek came from, obviously, from the usage it was in that day, but it wasn't used all that much. It was something of a, an empty term, a, a flat term. But when Paul picks it up and the other writers pick up this agape word, they fill it up. And they bring it to a high level of importance and significance and truth. It defines God. God is love. And it also defines the cross. Herein is love. And no question, Paul believed that love was the greatest of all the graces. If you go to the very last verse, you have that triad of graces, faith, hope, and love. But look what he says. Love is the greatest. It's the preeminent grace. When Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, that nine-cluster Format of graces. You remember in Galatians chapter 5, the very first one he puts on the list is love. Love. Love is the preeminent grace. But if you were to put a second grace on the list of priority or importance, what one would you put on? I would put the grace of faith. The grace of faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Talks about faith. All those men and those women who lived a life of faith. If love is the king of graces, which I believe it is, faith is the queen of graces. Faith takes us right to the heart of the gospel. We are justified by faith. We begin the Christian life by believing on Jesus Christ. Faith is a threshold or a starting block grace. But faith is also a running or a marathon grace. It begins the Christian life, but it also now regulates the Christian life. We are to live a life of faith. We are to walk by faith. We are to engage in the fight of faith. But what is faith? Well, I'm sure you've heard what faith is. Faith is a confident hope, trust, conviction, belief in God. And everything that God says is true. And in this chapter on love, Paul mentions faith three times. Did you notice that? Three times. Verse 2, 
For if I have faith so as to remove mountains, verse 13 again, faith, hope, and love. And then here in verse 7, verse 7 again, he mentions faith in conjunction with love, but not just in conjunction with love, but faith is an essential part of love. Love believes. Love has a faith power and operative. Oftentimes, love is viewed as as an emotion, isn't it? A feeling that, that can come and go. It doesn't require a whole lot of thinking. But faith is a thinking grace. To believe on Christ, you have to know who he is. To live a Christian life, you have to know truth. And love, you could say, is an intelligent grace. Love thinks. Love believes. And love just doesn't believe some things or a few things, but love believes all things. Love believes everything the Bible teaches about God. The Bible, love believes everything the Bible teaches about Christ. The Bible, the, love believes everything the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. Love believes everything that we learn in our Bibles about the triune God. The God who made the world. The God who saved the world. Love believes that the Father sent his Son into this world. That his Son became flesh. Love believes in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. In my place condemned he stood. Love believes that he rose from the dead. Love believes that Jesus now intercedes on our behalf. Love believes that the third person of the Trinity is God, fully God, and that he has regenerated us and that he sanctifies us and one day will glorify us. Love believes everything God says about man as an image bearer and as a sinner who sinned in Adam and who's under divine wrath and is in desperate need of forgiveness. Love believes you must believe on Jesus or you will perish in your sins. Love believes in hell and in heaven. And so we can say love believes absolutely. Love believes all things as in all things. That's looking at it from an exclusive divine perspective. That's on the surface of our text. But secondly, second point now, love believes comparatively or the qualified human side of things. Now when we dig deeper into this text of Scripture and think of the context and how best to interpret what he means here, I think it needs to be underscored, as we have several times, underscored this in previous sermons, that this is a letter written to a church, and he's dealing with people, and he's telling these Corinthians how they are to live in relationship to one another. They are to love one another. Remember that the Corinthian church was a problem-filled church. I don't think when Paul picked up his pen to write this letter to the Corinthians that it was all with smiles. I think he was somewhat grieved. It's a letter where he has to do a lot of confronting and rebuking. And like so many Christians of our day, the Corinthians had a hard time not mimicking the unbelieving world. They never got de-Corinthianized. 
And where they were particularly deficient and lacking was in love. They were somewhat like the church in Ephesus, described in Revelation 1, a loveless church. And because they lacked love, they looked at each other suspiciously, critically. You go back to the sin problems he's already dealt with in this chapter. Pride, envy, selfishness, verse 4 and 5. Those were sins that were plaguing the Corinthian church. And so the Apostle Paul fires another warning shot, you could say another rebuke, when he says, love believes all things. They didn't trust one another. And trust is foundational to a relationship, isn't it? You can't have a good relationship if you don't trust one another. Now obviously this Love believes all things has to be qualified. I don't think he is saying, and I'm sure you would agree with that, that he means you have to believe everything, everything you hear or everything you read. If you do that, the Bible has a word for you. It's called simple. Proverbs 14, 15, the simple believes everything. A dictionary definition of a simpleton is he's foolish, he's a gullible person, a person without common sense or intelligence, a moron, a dummy, a dimwit. Not very flattering, is it? If that's a person who believes everything, he's a simple person, and that's not a Christian by definition. A Christian is not a simple person. A Christian is not a gullible person. A Christian has to be discerning. He discerns between truth and error. A Christian is always on guard of the stratagems of the devil. A Christian has to be careful of walking in the counsel of the ungodly. The Christian has to exercise discernment. I find it somewhat ironic that Christians are often caricatured as naive and gullible people. who don't really think for themselves. But in reality, Christians are the best thinkers in the world. Only the Christian can think accurately about life. And love and faith are thinking, discerning, discriminating graces. In the words of our good friend Matthew Henry, love does by no means destroy prudence. Love does by no means destroy prudence. So when the apostle says love believes all things, he's not saying you believe everybody about everything in every situation or circumstance. Love is not gullible. Love is not naive. Our deacons know that. If someone comes off the street and asks for money, and that happens rather frequently, and they might ask for three or four hundred dollars, and maybe this individual asks for money so he can buy some food, and he needs a motel room for the night, and as they engage him in conversation, they begin to notice that he's slurring in terms of his speech patterns, and they can smell alcohol on his breath. Would it be wise to give him three hundred dollars? It's true, if we err, we err on the side of grace and mercy. But what if that man simply wants that money to go buy more alcohol? It would be unwise, would it not? 
they have to be discerning when it comes to writing the man a check or giving him some cash. Gullibility is not a Christian virtue. And one of your children, let's say one of your children comes to you and says, Dad, I'm, I'm getting 100% on every test. You don't have to worry, Dad, or check my report card. I'm doing great. And you really want to believe that's true. It could be true. But this particular child has some struggles in mathematics. And you've noticed some patterns where he doesn't seem to really want to study. It would be naive. It would be gullible to believe that child is getting 100% on every one of his tests. Love is not gullible or naive. But something else we need to say here to better understand what Paul is teaching us. Love is not suspicious. Love is not suspicious. Love is not eager to put the worst construction on things. That's really the point the Apostle Paul is making here. Love believes the best. Now, how easy is that? What is our natural bent? The German commentator R.C. Lenski captures, I think, it well when he says, The flesh is ready to believe all things about our brethren and our fellow men in an evil sense. It's much easier to believe the worst than to believe the best. And we all do that, don't we? It can happen over the most trivial things. Someone doesn't say hi to you three Sundays in a row. Or doesn't return your email or a phone call. Two days go by and your thoughts are already starting to run on a negative treadmill. They don't like me. They're upset with me. They're rude. They're unkind. We can think the worst about people at the drop of a hat. It's almost a reflex action of the soul. By nature, we are suspicious people, quick to find fault and quick to make judgments. Our fear, our pride can suddenly begin to do some negative talk and critical analysis where we misinterpret or wrongly interpret that other person's actions and motives. Think of the disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of the storm. How did they view the sleeping Jesus? Positively or negatively? Negatively. Don't you care? They assumed the worst. That's the heart of man. As one person put it, we glance at people's virtues and we glare at people's faults. There's a pastor by the name of David Furman. He's married to Gloria Furman. I'm sure some of you ladies have read Gloria Furman uh, books. She's written a number of books, but he's written a book on suffering. One of the best books, by the way, on suffering. David Furman is a pastor over in Dubai, and he developed a nerve disease and struggles just to pick up anything that would be normal to anybody, to pick up a, a towel off a floor. 
He, he, can't, he can't even fasten his own seatbelt when he sits in a car. He says, I, I can't even play with my children. I can't pick up my children. I, I can't even open, he says, a, a box of crackers to give them a snack. On one occasion, when he was over here in the United States for a quick stay, he and his wife went to a shopping mall, and his wife opened up the car door for him. She fastened the seatbelt for him. She managed to move the big cart with all of the groceries. She put them in the back of the trunk and closed it up, and there were three women sitting on a nearby bench watching. One woman spoke up and said, It's not right that your good-for-nothing husband just sits there. That woman assumed the worst. She assumed he was lazy. In reality, he was severely handicapped. Love is not gullible. True. Love is not suspicious. Equally true. But more positively, because this is a positive statement, love believes all things... That means that love has a favorable disposition. Love is willing, always willing to give the person the benefit of the doubt. Love is prepared to believe the best about people, not the worst. Love has an eye to see good, the virtues, not the faults. The Christian person should be the best person in the world when it comes to finding positive virtues, graces, and habits, and patterns in the lives of fellow Christians. You should be the best. If this grace of love is at work in our hearts, brethren, we should be constantly seeing, observing the best qualities in others. And I got lots of backup for that perspective. A quote, Martin Luther. Excuse him, speak well of him, put the best construction on everything. That's Martin Luther. John Calvin. Love is always ready to put the most favorable, favorable construction on anything. Matthew Henry. Love is apt to believe well of all to entertain a good opinion of them when there is no appearance to the contrary. Love is full of candor, apt to make the best of everything. Spurgeon, when it comes to our fellow Christians, love always believes the best of them. Want more? John MacArthur, love will always opt for the most favorable possibility. I think we could go further here. Love doesn't just believe the best, but love celebrates and affirms the best. Love has a tongue that speaks. In the previous all things, you might remember, love covers all things. Love covers the weaknesses and the failings the sins, but here you're going to a higher level. 
Love sees and acknowledges the good, but also talks about the good, thanks God for the good. Have you ever noticed when you read the epistles written by the Apostle Paul, almost every one of them, I think the only one exception is the one to the Galatians, but he always, always begins on a note of praise and thanking God for the good that he sees in others. Right into the Corinthians. Go back to chapter 1. You can see for yourself. He starts off acknowledging the grace of God at work in their lives. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, who called you into the fellowship of his Son. You could say he starts off his letter believing all things, all good things about the Corinthians. And while the apostle will later deal with the sin problems that plague the church, you could call it tough love, that's not the first thing that comes out of his mouth when he thinks of the Corinthians. He's able to thank God for the positive virtues, the graces he sees in their lives. And that wasn't always the way, was it, for Paul? He was once a Pharisee. And Pharisees were the poster boys for thinking the best about themselves and the worst about others. Jesus captures a Pharisee on camera, doesn't he, in Luke chapter 18. Those two men that come into the temple to pray. Remember, there's a publican, tax collector. And the Pharisees and the Jews regarded tax collectors as the worst of the worst. And this Pharisee, when, he, when he's about to pray, he looks over, he sees that tax collector, and all he can think of is how bad that guy is, how ugly, he's a scumbag, he's a lowlife. And then when he talks about himself, well, as soon as he starts thinking about himself, his narcissism kicks in. I fast twice a week, I, I, I tithe, aren't I wonderful? so eager to believe the worst about others and the best about themselves. And listen, there's a Pharisee in all of us. We all struggle with self-righteousness and pride, and it's very easy for us to censor others in our thoughts and believe the worst. Job's friends were like that. It's often been said Job's friends were fantastic until they opened their mouths. And while Job protested, Job said, no, guys, I'm not what you think. This suffering is not because I'm a hypocrite. God's not judging me. He pleaded his innocence, but they didn't believe him. Love believes all things. And going back to the Pharisees, they couldn't even look Jesus in the face. They couldn't think about Jesus without thinking negatively. There was nothing positive. They saw him as a a blasphemer, a drunkard, a glutton, a Sabbath breaker. I think there's only one Pharisee on, on record who comes to Jesus and said something positive. And that was Nicodemus. What did he say? Nicodemus, John chapter 3, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Nicodemus did not engage in the fault-finding criticism that distinguished his pharisaical comrades. He saw the positive and the good. And our Lord Jesus, by the way, did this better than anybody. 
Remember how encouraging he was to Mary? When Mary was sitting at his feet and her sister Martha begins to criticize, tell my sister to get out here in the kitchen and help me. And Jesus says, Mary's made a wise choice. He commends her. And when Mary and that other lady you remember in Luke's gospel anoints Jesus with that precious oil, there was the negativism of the Pharisee Simon in the one situation. In the other situation, there was the negativity of Judas and the other disciples. And they see what Mary does as a waste. And what does Jesus say? Jesus looks at her performance, if you want to call it a performance, and he gives rave reviews. He says, she's done a beautiful thing. She's done a good thing. She's prepared my body for burial. Remember Peter? Jesus knows Peter's going to fail him and betray him, deny him three times. And Jesus says to Peter there in the upper room, the devil's going to sift you as wheat but your faith will not fail, Peter. That's a positive statement. That's a commendation. Love believes all things absolutely from the divine exclusive side of things. Love believes all things comparatively from a qualified human side of things. And then thirdly, finally, love believes all things practically this is the beneficial side of things. Here's what we want to think about now. The practical benefits of loving like this, and to encourage this kind of love, let me just mention three benefits. Three benefits are practical encouragements. Why practice this kind of sacrificial kind of love? Well, you're commanded. That's simple enough. You're commanded to love like this. It's not an option. But in terms of benefits, what are some of the benefits, positives? Number one, you benefit society. You benefit society. Christians are to be, and we are, we're not just to be, but we are the light and salt of the world. The world desperately needs the Christian's influence. And one of the most frightening trends in our society today Easy to observe, just turn on your computer and lock into any website, is the critical, cynical spirit that's everywhere. There's hardly anything positive anymore about anybody. And so we have opportunity, Christians, to put the gospel on display by showing a loving disposition that assumes the best not the worst, even about your president. And the reason you can assume the best, at least when it comes to fellow Christian believers, is because God is at work in that person. If that person is a Christian, that means that that person has been loved by Jesus from all eternity. That person has been saved by Jesus, and God is constantly at work in that person. They can only get better. God never stops working. God never stops changing us. 
and bringing us into likeness to his son. God never gives up on us. And if we believe that God works out all things for the good of that person, bringing us to higher levels and deeper levels of sanctification, surely we can see good in that. Love believes. Now it's true, we will never escape the effects of the fall. We will always be failing and stumbling in a thousand plus different ways. The righteous man falls seven times, but he also gets up seven times. And if we believe in the doctrine of common grace, not saving grace, but common grace, that means that we should even be able to find good in the unconverted They're image bearers. They reflect something of the true God. They have to. They are image bearers. If we can go to a Yellowstone National Park or go uh, uh, on a canoe trip and, and, and look at the marvels of creation and see the beauty and the goodness of creation, why can't you look at a fellow image bearer and see something of the wisdom and the goodness of God? That's even true of people on death row. There's something of the image of God in that person. So that's the first benefit. It benefits society. Second benefit, it will strengthen your friendships and relationships and make you the kind of person that people want to be around instead of avoiding. Sourpuss... Cranky, complaining, critical, judgmental people are not attractive Christians. But believers who are joy-filled, thankful, affirming, encouraging will make the best of friends and they will be of the greatest encouragements when it comes to living the Christian life. What encourages you more? Let me ask you. Criticism or encouragement? Good job, bad job. I'm not saying we don't have to say sometimes to someone a bad job, but the point being, we need to be encouragers in the right sense of that word. If every day we got up in the morning and began to look for positives in our wives, husbands, children, and then vocalized those positives to them. Would that be good or bad for your relationship? Would that strengthen or hurt your relationship? And oftentimes, as marriages go on in time, husbands and wives become more critical, more fault-finding. If you focus more upon their strengths and their virtues and their graces instead of their weaknesses and their sins, You would be a lot happier, and so would they.
you would be a lot more useful and fruitful as a Christian. Why were children attracted to Jesus? Why were publicans and sinners attracted to Jesus? Because he preached against their sin? He did. He did. But they knew this person loved them. He loved them. I remember when I taught in a Christian school in Canada for two years, I taught a large group of Dutch young people And I would preach to them in class, whether that was wise or not, I did. At the back, and and at times I said some pretty strong things to them by way of application. I remember one time saying, some of you are just like Pharisees. And I remember asking them at the back end of the year when I was leaving, I said, how did you take it from Mr. Cook? How could you sit there and take that? And they said this to me, Mr. Cook, we knew you loved us. We know you loved us. And you show love by sometimes addressing people's sin, but you also show love by commending people and thanking people and affirming people. When Jesus saw a man named Nathaniel come to him, Remember what he said? A man of no guile. When Peter gave clear testimony that Jesus was the Son of God, remember Jesus commended him and even gave Peter a new name. We saw the great faith of that Roman centurion. Jesus said, never have I seen great faith like this. He encouraged that man in terms of his faith. And when your wife shows a quiet and meek spirit of a 1 Peter 3, when she embraces an area of life, of submission, where she struggled for years, do you encourage her? Do you say, dear, I thank God of the grace that I see in your life. When your brother or sister in the Lord at your church fellowship is going through a long trial, a difficult trial, one of those thorny trials, and you see they're discouraged at times and they're downhearted at times, but you also see a joy and you see a confident faith in God. You never hear them backbiting or criticizing or questioning God's goodness. It's a time to encourage them, encourage them and affirm them in their faith. The Bible forbids self-praise but not human praise. Paul was constantly encouraging people when he saw grace in their lives. Maybe a husband who's not been much of a romantic brings home some flowers. What's your first thought? Has he done something wrong? Has he totaled the car? Is he trying to get on the good side of me? Is that your first thought? Or could not you not believe all things and say, God's at work in my husband. And those 12 or 15 pink flowers are, are a little expression of his love for me and a testimony of that grace in his life. 
Do you want to help one another grow in grace? Sanctification, as Dr. Piper says, is a community project. You want to help one another grow in grace. You want to have a stronger marriage, stronger friendships. How can you help one another by practicing a regular thanksgiving, praise, and affirmation? Be a Barnabas-like encourager. Not a flatterer, but an encourager. One more benefit. When you practice this kind of love, you are imitating God. A God who loves to focus on the positives. He, he, he loves to see the best in his children. Don't you, dad and mom, love to see the best in your children? Doesn't that encourage you when you see good in your children? Well, God's like that. God's our Heavenly Father. And, and he's, he's greatly wonder, in, in, greatly happy when he sees the positives in his children. And he loves to focus on the positives. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 again. That great chapter on faith. Did you notice who's there? Noah, Samson, David, all of them. If you go back into their life history, made significant mistakes, failings in their lives. Noah got drunk. David committed adultery and murder. Samson got seduced by Delilah. What's the focus in Hebrews 11? Is there any mention of their failings, of their sins? Not one. What's in focus? Their faith. What they did and accomplished by faith. God loves to focus on the positive, not the negative. And one final thought. When you think of the future, you and I will stand before Jesus And what is he going to say to you? You made it just by the skin of your teeth. You're here, but, you know, you flopped up and failed quite a bit. What's he going to say? If I understand my Bible correctly, he's going to say this. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And when he says that to you, you might want to look behind because you think he must be talking to somebody else. But he's talking to you. He's talking to you. You say, well, but, 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 but I failed you, Jesus. I didn't love you the way I should have loved you. Yes, that's true. But my blood covered all your sins. And my righteousness was imputed to you. And your grace, the grace of love and faith was evident in your life. And you grew, you grew, not as much as you could have grown, but you grew. And you served me. Well done. That's what you're going to hear, Christian, from the mouth of your Savior. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus will focus on the positives, not the negatives. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for showing us mercy. Thank you for loving us when there was nothing to love found in us. And thank you for changing our hearts and giving us a heart that can now love you and serve you and love one another. And help us, Lord, to love like you've loved us. Help us, Lord, to put this kind of love into practice. Cleanse us and wash us from all of our sins, even the sins of this past week where we have judged our brethren perhaps in a harsh, critical way. Help us to be more positive. Help us to think more of the graces we see in their lives. And help us to commend and affirm one another in Christ. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.